Okay, folks, it is Carrie Freitas. It's the Interesting People I Know podcast. It is just me today. I'm going solo again, partially because I had a crazy week and wasn't able to book anybody, just really not focused on the goal. Um, But that's okay, because I actually really enjoyed talking to myself the other week, and I've gotten good feedback on that episode, so we're just going for it again. And maybe we'll do it more often, we don't know. I just saw that um, Dak Shepard, I think, hosted The Ellen Show like as a guest host, and I thought, you know, I mean, what's to say that that's not in my future? I'm no Dak Shepard, but um, I do have my own podcast, so at least I'm a step closer to that than I was before. So this week, I crowdsourced the topics. from interesting people I know. There's the there's the there's the link and the through line um, on Facebook. I just said, hey, you know, what should I talk about this week on the show? I want to you know know what you want to hear about, and so I'm just going to go through my Facebook feed as my guide to what we're going to talk about today. So um, there are a few topics here that were super super interesting to me. Um, someone had suggested I talk about the opioid epidemic and fentanyl. Um, And I think that's super important. So the homework I did do this week was find someone that I think can address this for us in the future. So I'll be doing a podcast, um, hopefully, in the next month with somebody that's going to take us through some of the the opioid, I can't even say it, the opioid epidemic, oxy, etc. And talk about a really personal experience they've had. And I think that'll be super powerful and it's important. So we'll be doing that. So that's coming up. And then climate change was another big topic. And it's something that I feel that, you know, I'm a, I'm not a, um, I'm a believer, obviously, in climate change. I, I can't believe people are deniers, but that's a different podcast. And I do have my cousin who happens to be um, the former director, executive director of the Rainforest Alliance uh, for like 20 years. And she now teaches at the NYU Stern School. Um, She teaches businesses how to be more sustainable. So she's going to come on at the end of October and talk to us about climate change from where she sits, which is an expert seat, and what we can do in our lives to help combat climate change and feel like we're part of a solution. So that'll be great. So those are coming up. In the interim, I'm loving my Facebook feed, so I'm just going to start right in on a question. This is from Kristen Stapp. Shout out to Kristen. And um, I got a lot of people saying this is a great idea. So of course, you know, there we go. That's the first topic. So life lessons. Um, What would you tell your 20 or 30 year old self when it comes to school, career, marriage, kids, etc.? I was talking to someone about this this week and thinking, you know, if someone had come to me when I was in my 20s and 30s and just dropped a ton of knowledge on me um, and wisdom, as I feel I, you know, currently have sitting here at 50, would I have listened? Was I ready to listen? Do you have to live it and then figure it out? Um, I've asked a lot of people this past week, and they all agree that, you know, even if someone had come to them with like the keys to the kingdom, as far as, you know, what does and doesn't matter when you're looking back at 50 on your 20s and 30s, a lot of people said they just weren't ready for the knowledge, or they felt like they wouldn't have taken it seriously. It's like your parents telling you, you know, hey, baby, don't worry about that. It's it's not going to matter in five years. But you know, when you're a teenager, and you know, you get a bad grade or something, and it ruins your day, you know, it matters then and your parents can't tell you otherwise. So I'm still going to go out on a limb and talk about what I would tell my 20 or 30 year old self in case it resonates with anybody. It might or might not, but um, it'll be fun to talk about. So launching in, 
I think one thing, and I just spoke to a class at two classes at Chapman this week about their careers and their, you know, thinking about going into PR and marketing. And, you know, of course, I tell them the cautionary tale about it's not necessarily an easy way to make money. And it's not a career where you'll ever find work life balance if you're good. And uh, but I just give it to them real. And I actually talked to the professor last night at an event. And he's like, wow, you know, you're the only one that talks real talk to these kids and they love it. So maybe there is merit. So I think when I look back on my 20s, one thing that no one ever told me going to college that was my was that my grades didn't matter. And, um, and, you know, this is in a little bit of a vacuum, because I wasn't gonna, I wasn't planning on going to grad school. So, you know, in that case, they might matter. Um, I, don't, I can't even speak intelligently to that of how much they matter or not. But to me, you know, college is way more about if you even go, which again, you've known um, that I'm becoming like not a college denier, but someone that is really looking at the value of college in a different way now. So if you choose to go to college, and I think choosing to or not are both equally um, admirable and appropriate choices, depending on where you're at, just use the college experience, one, to have fun, uh, because I really feel that, you know, you never get that time back. And, you know, adulting is overrated in a lot of cases. So I think if you're at college, have fun. Seek out new friends, new experiences, study abroad, go to a school that you thought maybe would never be a fit that's somewhere completely different than you grew up, or pursue a line of inquiry as far as study that you never thought maybe, you know, would make a you a living, for example, but it's still interesting. Because to me, I think, one, the grades don't matter at college, or, you know, in high school, they matter to get into college, but that's a whole different podcast, and I may talk about it today a little bit, too. But I also think it's like it's the time to really expand your mind. And whether you're at college or not, I think your 20s should all be about finding out who you are, taking a chance, taking some risks, not worrying too much about the future. I mean, don't, you know, hopefully find yourself out in the streets. Um, that wouldn't be great. But I mean, definitely go for it. And to me, you know, I look back and say, gosh, I wish I'd studied abroad. I was like, for some reason, I think too wrapped up in my boyfriend at the time, which is, you know, again, in the moment, it's hard not to be. But when you look back, you're like, I could have been in Spain, France, I mean, China, um, and just never got that opportunity. And I'm like, for what? For for a guy that was, you know, really great, but I didn't marry and the sex wasn't that good anyway. I mean, point, you know, it's like, you know, anyway, Murphy's laughing at me, but it's true. So you can't get that time back. And I didn't even do the thing after high school where you like, you know, had a few hundred bucks and got a URL pass and went to hostels. Like, Why? I mean, I could do that now, but one, I'm a little more creaky in my body. And so that's not as comfortable probably to be in those scenarios. But two, it's like, just like I felt the other night at college, like I would get so much more out of it now, but I feel like too old. It's like that, um, was it Drew Barrymore movie, like Never Been Kissed or something where she goes back and pretends she's a high schooler. I mean, I'd love to do all that now, but I'm too old for it. Um, And I'm not to say I can't travel and grow and learn, but the 20s are the time. Your body's your friend for the most part. Um, it'll do what you want it to do. And you can just get out there and do it. And, you know, I feel like that's the time. So I think in the 20s, throw caution to the wind, take risks, go to college or not, um, pursue your passions, meet new people, broaden your horizons, get a bigger worldview, travel, um, and just really go for it. I had actually talked to someone, I think I mentioned this last week on the podcast, but you know, I talk to people that are in their late 20s, and they're super worried about, you know, where they're at compared to their peers. So, 
you know, like, hey, I took a couple extra years. I took a year off. I went to community college, then transferred. And then I, you know, had to work my way through. And, um, you know, so I'm quote unquote behind. And I just feel like that's another thing in your 20s is like there's no kind of timeline or schedule. You're not behind. I mean, your path is your path. And it that maintains its truth all through your life. So I feel like don't worry about what your friend's doing. Don't worry about this friend that, you know, right out of college, got this great job in finance. And now they're like going the hedge fund route and they're going to, you know, print cash. I mean, sounds great in some ways, but in other ways, it's like, is that your path? Because how can you judge your path against that person's path? And I would argue that, um, you know, you have so many chapters to come in your life, even after your 20s, that nothing's written yet. So do what you want, explore what you want, and don't worry what other people are doing. That's number one. Two is, I'm not sure I would get married in my 20s again. Um, I had a super good run with my first husband. We were married for 20-something years, I think, and uh, together for 25, and I think married for 20. And we got married, uh, I was in my mid-20s. And I think, you know, certainly we had a good run, two beautiful kids, so there's not, like, regret there necessarily, but I think optimally, and even... I thought I was so, you know, um, self-aware. <laughs> we all, and I think in our 20s, think we know who we are and what we want, but we're still just getting started. So to me, I think I would love to wait and get married in my 30s when I'm more, like, formulated as a person. Um, and I'm not that judging people that get married in their 20s. Like I said, I'm one of them. You may find the love of your life when you're in high school, in junior high. I don't know. It does happen. But to me, I think waiting until your 30s until you are you know getting closer to who you are is I think probably even better although then again you know now I'm 50 I feel like I look back and I've changed so much even between 30 and 50 like what I have known who I am now then I don't know so but I do think putting off marriage um later is better that's another thing I think about so um and speaking of marriage, that's one thing I've really learned. I feel like I'm not an expert because I'm still working at it. I mean, you could ask my husband now and ask if I'm an expert in marriage. I don't know if he would say yes. But, um, what you know, I didn't understand going into marriage how intentional you need to be in your marriage um, at every moment. And I'm not trying to say be in your head all the time in your marriage. But I do think it takes a lot of effort and intentionality to have a good marriage. And what I mean by that is... I thought, you know, hey, if you're just kind of communicating, you know, treat each other as best you can, have sex, you know, fairly often, and um, just be in each other's presence, that's enough. And I realize now that it takes way more than that. I mean, it takes um, being a champion for your person. So, you know, for example, for your partner, it's supporting them and their dreams and their goals. um, And that's just not like talking every five years about it. That's, you know, kind of checking in weekly even to say, hey, like, how are you feeling? And it's not like, are you tired? It's more like, are you getting where you want to be in life? You know, what can I do to support you? Or I noticed that work was really demanding this week. Um, How do you feel about that? You know, you're exhausted, but are you on the right path? Is that what you want to be doing? And it's almost like coaching and championing each other. Um, And I think and without trying to control, which I think is a really hard balance to find. Because I think in my first marriage, I was, because I was insecure and immature um, and dealing with a lot of my own issues, I was super controlling. And so I'm not talking about talking about being someone's like Svengali and trying to 
make them into who you want. I'm talking about really honoring who they are, whether or not it fits your agenda. Um, so, you know, you may not want to hear that your husband um, hates his job because, you know, maybe that's your main source of income or your benefits are tied to it. But I think you have to be there to hear it um, and vice versa. So I'm not saying give up yourself in the process, but I do think it takes two people being each other's life coaches to a certain extent and being willing to hear the hard stuff, you know, hey, you're not happy, why? And having the hard conversations. And that's another thing is um, whether the hard conversations happen around work, parenting styles, um, your personal relationship with each other, sex, um, it's better to talk. And I was just so scared to confront and talk. Um, and I, you know, I think there's a smart way to go about it. But I do think don't be afraid of confrontation. Don't be afraid of bringing up the hard topics and bring them up early, right when they're coming up. And, you know, certainly understand the timing of discussion. So if your partner uh, or person is tired after like a hard day of work, maybe not the best time to bring up like, let's co-parent better. Um, but don't keep you know, sweeping your issues, wants and needs under the rug just because it doesn't seem like the right time ever. Um, and maybe you do set aside some time every week that's, maybe it's not on date night even, because that I think should be kind of fun and, you know, kind of letting loose with each other. But maybe it's more like a touch base, like on a quiet Sunday, um, when you can say, hey, let's look at the week ahead. Let's talk about our schedules and let's do a check in and see you know, where we're each at and how we can support each other better. And has anything come up that's like a tough thing to talk about and set aside five minutes for a hard conversation? Um, I know that in my journal that I'm doing currently, uh, it's got a space, it kind of comes up, I think they have questions that rotate through every day. So they're not always the same questions. But one question that comes up at least once a week in the journal as a prompt is, what's a hard conversation you need to have? And um, I thought that was really interesting when I first came across it. And it made me very anxious to look at it and go, well, I don't want to think about a hard conversation I have to have. That's what I spend time staying busy to not think about. Um, but I do think it is, has so much merit. And so I wrote something down, and I'll fess up, that I wrote something down about a hard conversation I need to have, and I didn't have it because I'm like, wow, it's like, and it's about really such a banal like thing. But it's like, I'm afraid of telling this person this banal thing, because I don't want to hurt their feelings. But at the same time, it's like, I need to talk about it. Because uh, it's like a little bit of an elephant in the room. Um, and it's just it, it it merits a conversation. So it's just an interesting thing that kind of popped up for me. And I and I'm espousing tough conversations for you all. But um, have I had the one I need to have? No, but I have to tell you that I have had um, in these past four years, more hard and honest conversations than I've ever had. Um, and it's been um, surprisingly um, amazing, the results I've gotten just from being honest. Like, I, I'm so scared of the argument and the confrontation and the hurt and maybe being disapproved of by that person or that person's angry at me. But I realized we can move through that um, and be better on the other side. And so to me, you know, it's worth the hard conversation. Um, and I'll continue to have them, but maybe just not the one I just wrote about in my journal. <laughs> maybe I'll just, I'll wait on that. I don't know. Um, so that's, um, that's a little bit of advice, I would say, again, for your 20s into your, into your 30s. Um, and that's the marriage piece. I'm going to say also the kids thing. So I spent a lot of time in my, I had my first child at 30. I spent my 30s. Um, really 
chasing like the perfect kid thing. So, you know, I was like, put my kids in private school. And again, um, I think private school is great for the right kids and the right situation. Um, but I ended up, I think I did it at the beginning because um, I, I thought my oldest child wouldn't do well in a public school setting because he is just, um, at the time at least, was just like super academic and just really, he's still quirky. How do I say this? Like I was worried he would get eaten alive in a public school setting, but that was really my projection um, from like me. Like I always loved school, but I always felt, and I think it's normal, like angst, normal kid angst. Do I fit in? Who are my friends? Who am I going to play with in the playground? Who am I sitting with at lunch? And I was like trying to shield my kids, I think, from like ever having to feel bad or insecure or not know. And I realized in hindsight, that's why I picked private school. That's just life. And so it's not like it didn't happen at the private school. The private school they went to was great, by the way, and gave them an amazing academic background. So I'm not going to say we didn't love it. And I'm not going to say I'm against private school. Um, For, again, you have to kind of judge your kid and see if that's going to be the best thing for them. But I think to me, the reason I chose it was wrong. So I chose it to, I think, shelter my kids from ever having to go through any pain, make a decision, have a moment of insecurity. Um, And that's a pretty fucked up reason to choose private school or anything for that matter. Because I realize now you can't shield your kids from that and you shouldn't shield your kids from those moments because how are they going to grow and learn? And I realize it's like as parents, we want to do the best thing for our kids. But I think I've made a lot of decisions to try to protect them, that they, in the end, deny them the tools that they need to formulate to feel strong, like they, you know, are part of the world at large, um, that they can navigate any situation, that they feel confident. So I think that they've had to develop those tools in other ways. Um, And I might have even hamstrung their development, honestly, in those areas or delayed it. Um, in an effort to be like this loving, you know, wonderful mom. And so I think that the my heart was in the right place, but the decision wasn't correct. And so I would just say, you know, as a parent, you want to shelter your kids and have the best life for them. Um, and that's admirable. That's a great come from. But I think you've got to make decisions based on kind of what's right for your family. And also kind of, I think, um, what's right for them. And it's not to help them avoid hard situations, like throw them into them, I, I think, actually, and help them learn. You're there to navigate and walk alongside them, but you're not there to prevent them from living life. And so that was a big thing uh, for me. And then there was also, I think, the social pressure around private school. Um, if, like if you had the money and you were doing well, you know how prestigious is that, that you can make the decision to send them into private school, you can afford the money. Um, and so why wouldn't you throw that at, the, at them or at the school? And um you know, to me, I think that's not a great come from either, right? Because um, you should be thinking of different ways to spend your money, maybe, or not. It depends on what your values are. Um, so again, if you're driven by peer pressure or from wanting to shield your child from ever going through an experience that may test them, not a good reason to pick private school. Um, but I will say when I look at, and we're doing some work at my um, at my firm for Sage Hill School, when I look at what those kids experience, um, and the kids, a lot of the kids that are coming out of there, I'm blown away by it. And they do seem like super well-adjusted, trial-tested, like bright kids that have really a lot of skills to navigate. So it's hard for me to make a blanket generalization because what I, the product I'm seeing, those kids are, are like quite extraordinary. And not just high achievers that aren't balanced, but like cool, well-adjusted kids that actually have skills. So um, I would just say 
the public-private debate, and this, again, is probably first world problems and in my little bubble, I just say choose it for the right reasons. Um, And the same thing comes with, like, the parenting thing. It's like I've noticed that I've done a lot of, like, hovering and trying to, um, I don't know, control the kids, I guess. Steering them or mentoring them is one thing. But really um, letting them find their way, even if it's painful to watch, is, I think, the best road. Um, And again, I haven't always done that. I've stepped in sometimes and just been the impresario of like, you should play with these people and you should do this and that activity. And um, I realized in hindsight that that's not the way to go. So I think letting your kids be themselves and they're not going to know who they are, you know, um, definitively necessarily until they're way older, but let them try things. So if they decide that, you know, out of the blue, they want to try karate or they, you know, they don't want to do a traditional sport that, you know, you feel is going to link them to a bunch of kids, but they want to pursue fencing. Um, I would say embrace it because they learn by trying. You want to let them be their unique, cool selves and don't worry about what other people are going to think if it seems like an outlying kind of behavior or weird or quirky. Um, I would say embrace it all. Just love them through it. Be there for questions and guidance um, and let them run. And I think this has been true as I watched Jeannie move through her senior year, actually junior and senior year, she's got a really great way about her of knowing who she is and what she wants. And she's really learned to navigate school on her own um, and make her schedule. So I'm there for a sounding board and backup. But I feel like watching her say, I'm going to take these classes online. I'm going to go work that out with the counselor. Um or she'll be like, you know, mom, you know, I know that like, quote unquote, four years of math looks better, quote unquote, than three to a UC school, but I really don't want to take math. I'm like, that's fine. As long as we know we're making an informed decision. And it, I think college is up to her. I'm not going to tell her as a parent that she has to take a certain class, especially when she understands the ramifications or possible ramifications, right? So if for some reason a UC school denies her because she didn't take four years of math, we knew about that when we signed up for the, just three years. And she's aware of it, aware of the consequences, and is whole with it. And so why wouldn't I be whole with it? So to me, listening to her and honoring her choices, and again, a valuable lesson for her to look at consequences, decide if they're important to her, make a decision based on that, work with her counselor. I haven't even been in to see the counselor. She's done all of the navigating, negotiating, schedule changes to get the schedule she wants, and as a result, is happier. And, um, you know, I'm always coaching her through it. Like, you know, hey, are you working to your full potential? Are you closing doors that you're going to care about? And and without me inserting myself, like I don't have an attachment to where she goes for school. Um, I don't have, like, I don't know what her potential is because it's it's in her. I think I have an idea, but she has to be honest with herself and know if she's working to potential or if she want doesn't want to. And there's a reason for why she wouldn't. Um, and that's okay too. So I think it's, you know, having those conversations is super important. Um, I do think, too, with kids, um, a certain amount of transparency from a young age. And again, I'm not a therapist, so um, there may be some counterargument to this, and I'm not purporting to be an expert on child development. But I have been, for the most part, super transparent and authentic with my kids about how I feel, um, what I want for them, um, what drugs are about, what sex is about, what friendships are about. Um, When I see behavior that's um, 
you know, like not positive, even among adults. Like if they, you know, even as kids, if they observe me being upset by something that a friend did, um, I would explain it to them in words they could understand. Like, hey, you know, a friend just, I mean, I'm just casting back into the past, but, you know, a friend just like said something to me that really didn't feel good. And, you know, that might happen to you sometimes. Has it ever happened to you at preschool or does that ever happen to you in third grade? Or tell me about that. And it becomes a teachable moment. So I've just been honest about myself, my feelings, my values, um, that I'm fallible, that I'm not an expert, um, but that I love them. And I think from a very young age, we've had a lot of trust built. And if you heard the, the podcast with Jeannie, that to her, and again, she's not every kid, but I think she um, is like a lot of kids, wants to be trusted and wants to feel like they're respected. And again, I haven't always been transparent like about I don't really talk finances with the kids. I mean, I want them to learn a value of the dollar um, and understand how hard I work for the things that that we all love and want. Um, but I never talk about, you know, if I'm concerned about like a cash flow issue or something, because I feel like that's just a stressor. But I mean, certainly I would talk about like, hey, are we spending money as a family in a way that is not um, cohesive to our value system? Um, or in a way that's not smart, you know, and then I might take a teachable moment to say, hey, you know, mom's been looking at the the bottom line, and I'm seeing we're going out to dinner a lot more than we should. And I'm like, I want to notch back, you know, but I don't talk about it, you know, being for a cash flow reason, I'll talk about it just as being a way to live your life in a responsible manner. So I think transparency and authenticity with your kids from a young age and words they can understand is super important. Um, so looking back again to my 20 or 30 year old self, I would say that's important um, too. And I think, gosh, um, Kristen's question said when it comes to school, career, marriage, kids, I think that that's the only thing I haven't covered is career. And that's such a hard one. Um, I found myself over this past week, not really protecting my schedule and work is, is I would say, excitingly in growth mode, but also a little bit out of control, um, which I guess is good when it's come when it comes to growth. And so I would say that, you know, this past couple of weeks, I have not balanced, I've not been there as much for my kids as I want to be. And I'm, you know, everyone's fine, but I do see little signs of um, in both my kids, and maybe I'm projecting this and want them to need me and they don't. <laughs> so take that with a grain of salt. But um, I do think I'm seeing the effects of me not managing my schedule well, so that I'm overtired, I'm not showing up like I should, and it affects their mood and their day. So I would say with career, you know, um, and again, I said at the top of the podcast that I talked to these classes of PR marketing students at Chapman and told them that work-life balance is, is, I think, a fallacy. And I do kind of believe that. Um, And that may sound negative, but I think it's super hard to balance. And I think, um, especially if there's pressure, whether you're, you know, the main breadwinner, sole breadwinner, or just a contributor to, there's a pressure um, to make money. And so, but I, I think it's hard not to lose sight of sometimes being there for yourself or your kids and your partner and your friends. So I would say as far as it, it comes to career, um, like pick something you're super passionate about and hopefully then the, the job, the career doesn't feel like a job, which is, you know, not everyone's as fortunate. Um, But I also feel like, to me, um, do schedule some time, obviously with your kids, your partner, your friends, and just put it on your schedule. And I think that um, you have to schedule the time. And last week, I 
scheduled so much time outside of work um, and the work still had to get done that I just didn't schedule any time just for me, I noticed. So I scheduled tons of really fun, like heart-filling, soul-connecting walks with friends. Um, I had a lot of events to go to, social events for work. Um, I scheduled a date night with Alan, which is, of course, important. Um, I scheduled time with both. Well, actually, just because Liam's been so busy, I really only had time with Jeannie. And um, I discovered that I didn't schedule time for me. So I would say that don't forget that part and just make sure you're not overscheduled. And I think when it comes to career, whether you're the dad or the mom and and whatever you come from is, um, to me, I feel like I really, I love a career where there's flexibility for you to work and time shift um, to make decisions about how you want to be involved in your kid's life and in your spouse's life your or your partner. Um, and that's just one thing I did tell the kids at Chapman who are looking at me like they don't really get it because I'm like, you know, they're like 20, <laughs> night, between 19 and 22. And they're like, okay. Because I said, you know, I'm preaching the gospel of like being self-employed at some point. Um, and I don't know when, you know, that's possible or if it's possible for some people. But I love – you know, running your own show after you've gotten the experience you might need in a more corporate setting or a more organized kind of work structure, because then you can call your own shots. And that's been kind of the biggest blessing for me in what I do is that having been on my own um, since I was 26, um, as far as my work, I haven't, I've worked for clients, but not um, necessarily within any corporate structure, just as more as a consultant or having my own company. It's been so great because I've been able to make the decisions about being volunteering in class or going on the field trip or being the room mom um, or being able to take off in the middle of the day with my husband and go have lunch. Um, and maybe date night is like during the day when it's less crowded. So I think having that kind of level of control over your life and your schedule is like such a blessing when it comes to being a parent um, or a spouse or a partner. And so I would say, you know, if there's any way to create a career in your 20s or 30s that lets you have flexibility and maybe it becomes a non-issue to people that are 20 today because maybe everything becomes a virtual work environment um, at some point or largely. Um, And maybe people have more choices on going out on their own and consulting or, you know, gig economy. So um, whenever possible, I totally preach the gospel of that. Um, And just remembering that and that, you know, having flexibility is really valuable. And I also think I guess I've been seeing kind of like um, a little bit of a backlash, I think, about like work, being a working parent. Um, I think maybe because I, I live in a more affluent community where people can make choices. Um, but I don't think you should ever um, have to feel guilty for loving your job or spending time there. Um, and I'm not saying neglect the other people in your life, but I'm saying if you love what you do and get completely immersed in it, and end up working like some late nights or on the weekend or, you know, and you're, I don't think you should be apologetic for that. I think that should be celebrated because I think, and again, not just for women, but for men. Like, I think that, you know, if you love what you do and it, it tends to become consuming at times, that's just who you are. And if you're all in and loving it, I think that's good role modeling for other people in your life. So to me, I would say never feel guilty about loving your job. I mean, don't neglect your peeps. Um, but I think that I've had to work through some guilt about, um, like not being like not loving cooking for my family and like ordering in more or just like serving a lot of prepared foods. Um, 
and being like, well, I'm not really a good parent because I'm doing this and I'm favoring like work time over the cooking time. And um, I think that's just something I put on myself that's not always even true. I just don't happen to like to cook. Um, but I just don't take the time to do it. And um, a lot of times I am working late at night, but I'm working in the presence of my kids and maybe they're watching YouTube on their laptop and I'm working. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because it's still, it's still time spent. So I would say 20 and 30 year olds, um, if you're developing a career that's your passion and you're all in, never have a moment of guilt about that because I just think that it's part of who you are. And I think it's great for, you know, our kids, friends and, and partners to see us loving what we're doing for a living. So that's a long answer to that question. I hope I answered it. Um, oh, I'd also say, I mean, and you know, it's the whole anti-diet thing, but and which I've struggled with actually in the last 24 hours. I saw a picture of myself from the back um, and I was just a little bit like, I don't know if I was, I think I was just overtired. So that didn't prime me for a great response, but I was just looking at it going, what the actual fuck am I looking at? And I had to get in touch with Alana, who you guys know from the podcast. I texted her, I'm like, oh, I'm having a fucking fat day. And I look like, I don't even know. I felt like I looked like the hunchback of Notre Dame. I don't know that guy's name. I think he had some weird Spanish name. Quasimodo. Quasimodo. Thanks, Murphy. Murphy coming in clutch with the name. Um, what is Quasimodo for 500? So to me, I'm like, what? So then it sent me down a little spiral like, wow, okay, so like I've been preaching anti-diet. Now I like actually super am fat. I'm not in touch with how fat I am. Um, I have blinders on. And then Alan came home from the workout this morning that I didn't go to because I was exhausted because I hadn't protected my time. And the trainer's like telling Alan like, oh, tell Carrie she's doing great. And and that felt good. And then she said something to Alan like, I'm going to focus more on her smaller muscle groups. So I took that as being like, wow, I'm bulking up and you're saying I'm fat. Awesome. So fat for the win. Um, but then I realized I'm in my head. So that was self-indulgent, but I just have to let you know how I'm feeling. I'm not perfect, um, nor do I pur- uh, purport to be. But one thing I thought about is my 20s and 30s, how much I chased the perfect body. And if I had spent more time just kind of like feeling the feelings that I really was feeling and letting myself feel feelings and letting myself have off days and not having emotional eating um, – and just like letting myself be, I probably wouldn't be as spun out as I have been about my body and my diet and eating disorders and stuff. So I'd say learn to love your body younger if you possibly can. Just like love on yourself. Like, I don't know whether it's mirror exercise. I don't know whether it's other kinds of self-talk or meditation. I don't know whether it's curating your social media. I don't know whether it's not reading Glamour magazine. I don't know what it is. And for men, too, men struggle with body image, too. Learn to love and respect your body younger. Don't hold yourself up to some weird societal standard of what a body looks like for a man or a woman. Um, And if you could avoid some decades of just shit down the road, please do it. Um, And I think if I hadn't messed around with my body as much as I did with diets and all sorts of crazy disordered eating and and stuff, um, then I wouldn't be struggling today with it still. So that's a huge piece. And you hear me talk about it to ad nauseum and you're probably like now turning off the podcast because you're over it. But if you're still listening, thank you. Okay. Um, other questions. Murphy, how far am I into this thing, by the way? I said to keep, I'm probably like 35 minutes in, 40. 35 minutes and 17 seconds. Oh my gosh. What? Savant. Okay. All right. So I have a little more time. Um, So I'm going to talk about, so Leslie Kristen, love you, um, asks me how, um, talk about how you didn't let fear stand in the way of starting your business or your podcast. Want to hear your journey. This is something I talked about at Chapman this week too. 
And um, I think I've mentioned it in the podcast before that it is a privilege to, how do I phrase it? It wasn't great that my mom died at a young age. So that's not great. Um, I guess a silver lining of that was that because she died, um, my grandfather set up a trust for me. And it's nothing um, like people hear about, like, trust fund kids or trust afarians. Like, it's not anywhere near that level. So, I'm again, I'm so blessed to have anything. But, like, we're not talking about never work again. And not, nothing close to that, right? Maybe, like, take an extra trip sometimes every few years. So, um, but one thing it did give me was the privilege of knowing that um, I could take a chance on starting my own business at 25, 26. Um, and if I didn't make money for a few months, that I wouldn't be on the streets. So that's kind of how I'd frame it. Um, so I think, you know, people are like, oh, it's so amazing you started your own business at 26. And, you know, okay. But like a lot of people can't take that chance because they don't, they're just living month to month. And I knew at least... I would have probably six months of being able to make my rent and eat um, because of this, you know, money from my mom's passing um, so that it gave me the chance. That was one thing that made me have a safety net. And I, again, feel super thankful for that. Not everyone has that. But it, I guess in addition to that, because six months isn't a long time, I guess. I mean, I didn't have enough money to like start my own like business that would be product related. Since I'm a service, there was no overhead. You know what I mean? So that was less of a jump. Um, as far as money. So, but it didn't give me the ability to like never work or take a really huge risk. So I think the rest of it was um, just knowing, I guess it's so weird, Mike. Um, and I'm sure everyone else that's listening experiences compartmentalized confidence, right? So you may be like, I mean, Alan was like, was and still is a kick-ass athlete, right? So I just watch him working on the gym and just go, whoa, okay. And he just, he doesn't take it for granted because I think I remind him to not, but I think he would, not in a bad way, but he just knows that he can like jump high. He was good at every sport he picks up. Um, he works out for like, you know, a few months and he's like got an eight pack. I mean, like, you know, and I told him, I go, you're really lucky. Like, that's cool. And he, he loves being, you know, active. And so he's got... Maybe that's a bad example, but he's confident that whatever sport he tried, even if he went out today and like had never, he's done paddle surfing, but he's never like surf surfed. So, but I bet you he could go out there and just do it and like have no problem because that's the way he's experienced every sport in his life. Right. So he has kind of compartmentalized confidence, I think, in that he knows he can just do that. Um, and some people maybe um, are just you know, really know that they're smart or they may be really good socially or they may be like an amazing cook and maybe they're really feeling like some other part of their lives, they have like absolutely no confidence. So for me, I always felt um, because I was reinforced, you know, as a young child for being um, good in school um, and entrepreneurial and um, because I think I just watched my dad and I just like, I started entrepreneurial ventures like when I was like even little Um and so I was always, you know, and they always were good because I guess got a lot of feedback like, hey, you're great. Like, so I think I have compartmentalized confidence in my ability to make money um, and to be successful in work because I've always gotten positive reinforcement. So all I know is Carrie's good at that. You know, I think the messaging I didn't get as a kid, which is where my confidence is low and you don't have to be a genius or even listen to this podcast if you met me once to know that you probably will intuit that I'm not confident about my how I present to the world as far as my looks, my weight, how I look, my face. I mean, you could go into break it down. So 
to me, it's like, it didn't seem risky to start a business because I'd been reinforced for being smart and good at what I did. Like that was the one area as a kid I was super confident about. So it didn't feel risky at all. I was like, I'm, of course I'm going to succeed because I always have, it's all I know. And everyone says I'm good. So I've got six months rent. Um, I can start a business and you know what, if it doesn't work, I can go back to working somewhere else. So it didn't feel very risky. Um, so, I mean, I hate to sound like I'm not giving myself credit, but it just didn't feel like a risk. And I think that when I talk to a lot of people who, and I've just talked to, to one friend of mine in particular, I'm not going to name her, but, you know, she, um, I met her years ago and she came to me as part of a job interview and she was interviewing for a different job and ended up, you know, in that conversation, finding out she had this talent that she wasn't pursuing as something she was monetizing. And I'm like, well, why don't you, you know, do this job here with me and the team, but like also flex these muscles in this area that you're not even practicing because you look like you've got a lot of talent. And she had compartmentalized confidence in her ability to do a job she'd already been proven at, but not the job that she didn't have any quote, you know, formal training in or hadn't really applied her trade in like in a getting paid for. So I felt, you know, I can see how that would feel risky, but she was able to try it in a non-risk environment. And then now she's got her own practice doing that that particular, um, you know, type of work, and she's killing it. But I think, you know, so that feels more risky, and I get it. So I think that I, like I said, I'm evangelizing the working for yourself and taking risks thing. It was easier for me in this area. If someone said, go try to be a model, I would have been like, never doing it. Um, And I can say that pretty, you know, and because I just have a huge crisis of confidence in that area. Um. So I think it's really hard. Like I didn't let fear stand on my way, but there wasn't a ton of fear around it. Um, so, and the podcast was something that I wasn't fearful to do because like I'm controlling it, right? So like I trust Murphy. He's here. He knows exactly what he's doing. Um, he's not a judgmental person. So he's not going to judge what I say or do in here. Um, and I don't know if that's always the case. It probably isn't. Um, and I knew I was paying for it myself as my 50th birthday gift to myself. So like, I'm not beholden to a sponsor. Um, this is just for me and it's completely self-indulgent as you guys have figured out. Um, so to me, it's like, there's no fear around that. There's no risk around that. Um, I think places I have let fear stand in my way, um, would be my marriage, my marriage, my first marriage, um, and in friendships. So I would say there, like, that seems like a bigger leap of faith, right? So, like, I knew my marriage wasn't going well. I'm sure my husband did too, my first husband. And I was too scared to change anything. I was too scared to see what it would be like to not be married to someone. Um, and I let it go for years, let it run, right? And so I think, um, you know, when I got divorced, so that just really kept me. And it kept me from developing as a person, to be honest. Like, it kept me living smaller in my business. It kept me from being the parent I really should have been for the kids and making choices for, you know, the wrong reasons. Um, it kept me from having deep friendships because of some issues in the marriage. So, um, you know, I think that I let fear stand in my way there for sure. Um, and I think that, you know, I stepped into my own, like getting into a new relationship and a new marriage and doing it differently. And it was scary as hell. And, um, I thought I might die, as I told talked about in my fear podcast. I thought I was going to die when I got divorced, probably just from fear, like probably just end it. You know, I would never end my life, but I probably just like fall over and it would be over. So I think that um, working through that fear was super important, and that was all about supportive friends, 
Um, and that was all about um, crying. <laughs> and it was all about just doing things I, and faking it um, and taking chances. And it was really excruciating. So if you're in fear of starting your own business, um, a podcast or whatever you're in fear of, I would say that you just need to get your support system around you. Um, do a lot of positive self-talk and honestly, just kind of go for it. I think um, starting a new business is a lot easier, like I said, if you're not launching a product because you don't have to have like 500000 to a million dollars to either get a retail space, do product research. I mean, if you're thinking about starting a service-based business, um, it's so much easier because there's just no overhead, you know, for something like I do, like a consultant. But if you are thinking of starting a business or any other kind of journey and you want to talk to someone about it, um, private message me on Instagram, or if you know me, text me or email me, whatever it is, it'll be in confidence and I'm happy to talk you through it. Um, I tend to talk a lot of people off the ledge cause I've been there, but, um, I hope that's a good answer to your question, Leslie. It's one of those things where I really didn't feel like I took a huge leap of faith. I didn't have a lot of fear about my business, but I've had a lot of fear about other stuff and, um, have worked through it and probably was mastering it, but I'm here to talk about the other side of it too. So happy to talk anyone through anything on that. Um, I have something here about, oh, so um, Kimberly um, Daskus, as I know, or Flora, married name, said talk about vaping. Um, I wish I had an answer for this. I, I'm really scared about it. Um, it was funny. I was watching Chris Cuomo on primetime on um, CNN. Maybe it was like a week and a half ago. Talked to the, the president of the American Vaping Association, which I was like, there's an American Vaping Association, um, which I didn't love. But um, at least if it's like a regulatory body, hopefully they can make sure that things are cleaned up um, when it comes to vaping and like um, vitamin E or other kinds of things that people are cutting vape solution with. Um, I don't love, I guess... The idea of um, and it's it's the same thing with Camel cigarettes and a bunch of other cigarette companies way back in the day, where they said they weren't marketing to kids or teens, but they were using mechanisms that really like whether it was visuals, cartoons, messaging that really appealed to kids and teens. But they said it wasn't towards kids and teens. But we all you know we're no fools, so we know that they are marketing to kids and teens, but they're pretending you're not, right? Um, so. I have a problem with that. But again, it's kind of hard to say now that our kids and teens are, are growing up so much quicker with social media and exposure to like this more flat earth. Not, I'm not a flat earther. I believe the earth is round. But more like you kind of get a sense for like there's like one world. A lot of cultures are getting a little bit more, um, I guess, kind of like – I don't even know how to say it. Like um, identify – like I – think that when I go to Europe, it seems less European and exotic than it used to because I feel like the earth is kind of becoming flat as far as things becoming more homogenized um, culturally. So I feel like, you know, it's hard to say to me um, that, you know, that kids and teens aren't going to be kind of attracted to the same kind of marketing messaging that adults would because I feel like a lot of them are in the same kind of spot so to me it's like I think it's really hard to tease apart what is specifically targeted just to kids and teens and what just might be aspirational like the cool factor that kids and teens are attracted to from from vape or other booze marketing whatever it is so um I have a hard time drawing a line on that part um and saying that yeah you know there should be some kind of other way to market the vape Um, But I think the problem is really saying that vaping is better than smoking. Um, 
I don't believe that. Um, and it's not just because of these deaths, but I just think when you're delivering that kind of like a drug into your system in that way, and maybe not getting the tar, but you're certainly getting, I think, a more intense um, effect. And I just still don't see how it can be good for you regardless. Um, and so that to me, and I know it's not legal for underage kids to vape, but they have access to it. So I guess we have to look at it like smoking. And I think there probably needs to be, well, not probably, there should be, you know, as when we were growing up, I remember like they started to do all those, you know, either the don't pollute ads and also the don't how smoking kills you. Right. So um, I think that we have to do that with vaping. I think we have to have vaping can kill you. And it's not just because you've got vitamin E in your rogue, you know, cartridge that you got from a dealer. Right. But it's like other effects of vaping, not like the outlier death cases, which I think should be publicized, but also like what vaping really does to you on the daily, even with the regulated vaping cartridges and, um, you know, delivery mechanisms. So to me, that's what needs to happen. Um, and I just remember when those anti-cigarette commercials were going on when I was little and my dad was a huge smoker. I remember going like, dad, you got to take that cigarette out of your mouth. I remember like trying to like swat it out of his mouth. And I believe me, I got in trouble for that. That didn't go over well. Um, but I just remember like, proselytizing to my own dad and it's same thing with with littering um and my dad throwing cigarette butts at the window so I remember like as a kid I mean you couldn't tell me that smoking whatever I mean I did end up like trying smoking for like a hot second because I thought it was cool like because I had my jeep with the top down and my Marlboro Reds and I thought I was just you know kid you know badass um but I think every kid will experiment but I knew in my heart of hearts even then this is something I wasn't going to do for the long run or even the, really a short run because it can kill you. Um, and I think those ads and those PSAs during that time and that curriculum, I think that was even brought into schools, really had an effect on me. And I think that that's what has, has to happen with vaping. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, that's something we have to have. Um, and, I, and I know that there's huge lobbies around big tobacco. Obviously, there's huge lobbies around guns. Um, and I'm sure there is around vaping. If there's an American Vaping Association, I can only imagine um, how much, you know, lobbying there is for that industry. So I think we just have to demand that the effects of vaping, whether it's, I'm not talking about just dying, which is ridiculously horrible, but also the day to day, like when you, when the kids are saying they feel domed or domey, like, what does that mean? How is that affecting their brains in the long run? How is that affecting their day to day interactions? Um, and so I think, you know, that's something that we need to push for. Um so that's one topic on vaping. And I just know is how prevalent it is. I've seen it with um, firsthand with kids that I know. And I know it's happening in classrooms and kids can just blow the vape into their sweatshirt. The teachers don't even see it. So I feel like, you know, starting with just educating kids and parents more about it is cool. Because I think a lot of even my friends whose kids I know vape don't understand the effects of it. Um, and I think even when my husband's kids came over for, I think it was Father's Day, I mean, everyone's vaping and we're sitting. Yeah. I mean, it looks kind of cool. It's really hip. Is it? I mean, I don't think it is, but I think it, like, to me, it's like when you're blowing out all that smoke. I mean, this, I can see myself that age going, well, shit, yeah, that looks fucking cool, man. Look at all this vape, you know? Or like, this tastes good, you know? And again, I don't think they're really, I mean, and I might be controversial here. Um, Go ahead. You know, but I just feel like I don't think the flavors are necessarily what's attracting the kids. I think it's the act of vaping and how it makes them feel. So to me, it's like, you know what? Flavors are flavors. I mean, you can't say ice cream's 
targeted just to kids because the flavors are good. Like I'm just, just, I'm at 50 years old. I'm in there for all the flavors, you know? So I feel like it's, you know, let's just talk to parents and kids about what the hell vaping does to your body. Because I don't think anyone gets it. I think vaping came around. I'm 50 probably, you know, I don't know what all goes down. I just see it. I can't smell it. So I'm like, well, it must be better than nicotine, you know, but I'm, I'm like, I'm glad there's no tar, but what actually is happening? And it seems like they're getting like a pretty great effect. I've like just one kind of toke on the vape, but they have to take it more often. So I'm like, what does that even mean? Um, so to me, you know, that's something that I don't, I'm, I'm not with necessarily thinking that it's about like stopping the flavors um, and it's, you know, stopping the kind of advertising. I think it's more about, um, you know, educating all of us on what vaping really does so we can share it with the kids and just, you know, scaring the shit out of them. That's anyway, that's my thought. And kids can get scared. They think they're too tough. And yes, yeah, some of them think they're immortal. Um, but I think ultimately, I think kids nowadays are probably a little more scared than they ever were and feeling a little less, a little more mortal because they've seen all this stuff and how people die and their friends are ODing on, you know, and we'll talk about this in the episode about drug addiction, but that, you know, former Eagle Scout, and that's part of the headline because it's more sensational. Uh, but the 29-year-old kid that was running a drug ring out of Utah sending, you know, quote unquote, which looked like legit um, oxy to kids in California and other states, um, which actually is with fentanyl and killed him. So it's like the first time you try oxy, you're dead, you know. Second time. So I think kids know this and they're actually more scared than they want to let on. So I think they're they're looking for excuses, I think, honestly, for us to tell them don't do that. You know what I mean? So um, and they've shown that kids like boundaries, which I know seems antithetical to how your kid reacts when you throw down a boundary. But um, they like them and need them. And even if they fight you on them, it's better. So let's just find out what the heck vaping's about. Let's start some PSAs. Let's create a groundswell about this shit's scary. It's not just the outliers that are dying from these weird cartridges. It's actually like every vape, even the Juul brand, even this other brand, legit quote unquote brands that are regulated are doing this to your brain, you know, making your life shit, whatever it is. I don't even know the answer, but that's where we start. So Kim, I hope that was good. It's just a start. Um, all right, let's see. Um, Okay, Dana Meyerson, I'm just going to say I can't talk about this because I didn't go there, but she just went to Americana Fest in Nashville. She said it was fabulous. There's an app that you can download and check out how fun and beautiful it was. She said seven days and nights of nonstop bands in every venue in the city. So I've already been wanting to go to Nashville. Dana Meyerson, thank you. We'll check out Americana Fest in Nashville. I'm hoping it's not all country. No offense to country people. Not country people. That sounds really bad. Country fans. Um, I'm not a country fan. And but I could get there. You don't know. But I mean, I'm open to experimenting. Um, Julie, uh, Julianne, um, I always butcher your last name, Julianne. I've known you for a million years. You wrote for Coast Kids for me when I was editor. Julianne Olsikas, I think is how you say it. I'm probably butchering it. Her husband um, owns and operates the amazing Blue Water Grill chain, which I'm a huge fan of. And I still have never been to the Catalina one. I want to go. She is an etiquette expert. So I'm going to have her on. She said, talk about etiquette. I'm like, amen, sister. So um, Julianne, expect a call from me soon because we're going to hook that episode up. And I don't know if you all know this, but she's a published etiquette expert. Um, and probably I think she works with not just um, people that go into pageant uh, world, but also executives and um, other high level people. But she also trains, I think she still does this, the Rose Court. 
So all the queens, and I think they're all queens on the Rose Court. There's a queen, maybe in princesses. I'm terrible. Sorry, Julianne. But she trains them all on the etiquette, which I think is fascinating. So we're going to learn more about that in an upcoming podcast. Sunny Beaker coming in hot. Sunny Beaker. I don't know if she's she's probably got a private um, Instagram and Facebook feed. But if she lets you into her feed, she has the best content. And she's not even doing this as a professional Instagrammer or Facebook post, you know, social media queen. But she, her perspective and what she has on her feed is incredible. And it made me want to meet her. Like I fangirled about her before I even met her and knew I had to contact her. And I I did manage to weasel my way into her orbit, which I'm very appreciative of. Um, But she had sent me something about, talk about boundaries, how to use boundaries with friends, lovers, kids, family. Wow. So um, Jenny Herdman, Trustick Smith. Um, those are her names to me. So Jenny Smith, married name, who I had on the episode um, or on the podcast at the very beginning. I'm going to have her back. Just saw her last week about this. I think we are going to talk about a few things. One of them is going to be boundaries per Sunny Beaker's um, request. And others have talked about this with me too. And then also I want to talk about imposter syndrome because I think it's rampant. I have it. The more I talk to people about it and give it a name, the more people are like, oh my gosh, I have that too. And then we're going to talk about the language we use to talk to ourselves and others and how important language and vocabulary is. And I'm not talking about highfalutin words when, you know, using a $500 word when you can use a 50 cent word. I'm talking about the way we talk to ourselves, what we choose to say and to others is really important. So expect that on the upcoming podcast. I'm going to say to Sunny, though, near term here about boundaries, Um you know, those are those are kind of like rules and regulations you set for yourself based on what you need and want and things that do not feel good to you. And I'm going to say that that's a really hard thing to do for me, I think, because I'm a recovering codependent. Um, boundaries to codependents are like anathema. Like, what is that? Why would I have a boundary? Um, and this actually happened last night. I went to an event with my husband, Alan. Great event. But it was like super chaotic. And it's just the nature of the event. Super fun. It was a very successful event. Um, but it's a chaotic event. There's a ton of people in a small space. And I'm usually not claustrophobic, but I found myself getting really anxious in that kind of like you couldn't move without bumping into somebody. Um, and there was just nowhere to go to talk and connect to either the person you brought with you. You couldn't really network with the people that were there because the band was so loud and it was so such a commotion that it just was kind of uncomfortable, right? So um, I started to have no boundaries towards what Alan was feeling, right? So his emotions were my emotions, but really actually my emotions became his emotions. So I'm feeling anxious. And then I'm like, well, shoot, like if I'm feeling anxious, Alan, who doesn't know anybody here and who's I know came to this event to support me, but it doesn't feel well, has got to be feeling like complete hell. So then I take on that and just go like, oh my God, I'm like, Alan, are you okay? I'm so sorry you're here. And he's just like, babe, chill out. I'm fine. I'm here to support you. I wouldn't have come if I didn't think I was up to it. Do your thing. Don't worry about me. But I'm like, one, uncomfortable for myself, two, in my head about how he's feeling, and just then in a shit mood. And so I had zero boundary there, right? And I guess the boundary I probably should have drawn is that I was already beyond exhaustion before going to the event, wasn't really feeling great myself. He's feeling not great, pretty much sick. Um, And I pushed myself to go to this event because I felt like I wanted to support the cause and connect with people. And I should have known from going before that it probably wasn't the best place to connect with people. Yes, I want to support the cause, but I can do it in a different way and have been. Um, And maybe just set a boundary that like, you know what, that night's not the night for me to go out. 
and I just didn't do it. So it's hard. Boundaries are so tough. And even like I said in earlier in this show, top of the show, that I have not protected my own schedule the past two weeks, I've been just running ragged. That's not setting a boundary. And what the price I pay is one, being exhausted, two, and so so exhausted that one, I can't, I didn't make two out of my three workouts this week, which is like, again, just hurting me, giving me less energy, right? Um, the second boundary, you know, or then I'm not able to show up for my kids. So by not setting a boundary, I am not showing up for my kids, which makes me feel worse. Um, I'm exhausted. Um, and I'm also less able to deal with, you know, the, you know, vagar- the vagaries of life, right? So seeing a picture of myself looking what I think is like Quasimodo, probably in a different day, I would have looked at just like myself from the back with a, you know, unflattering angle. Um, so boundaries are super important. And I don't think I don't think I'm the only one that has a problem setting them or else they would be coming up on people's feeds, right? So I think boundary setting is really important. And we're going to talk about that more. Um, Sarah Tobin, love her. Um, She's the one that got me into podcasting in the first place because she is from Australia and turned me on to um, a podcast network called Mamma Mia. And you can get the app here. You don't have to be in Australia. Um, And they have just a great kind of a whole host of podcasts. Um, and of course, they're more fun to listen to because everyone's speaking in an Australian accent, so which I can't do and can't bring to you. So I apologize. Listen to Mama Mia for that. But um, she's a, a great resource for all sorts of stuff. And so she's talking about kindness. Um, and um, she's the one that wants Murphy to actually be on the podcast soon. So rest assured, um, Sarah, I talked to Murphy at the top of the show. He's going to be on soon, whether he wants to or not. Um, maybe he's going to draw a boundary and says he doesn't want to be on it, but we'll see. I'll try. I don't know. He's laughing. There's probably a boundary there that I just crossed. Um, kindness. So it's so interesting to me um, how, I don't know if you, you know, y'all know about um, Liam's um, person, um, best friend, you know, Blaze Bernstein. And I think the people, a lot of people that live in California, some beyond California, because it made national news, heard about his um, gruesome murder. It's a hate crime. And, the the uh, young man that perpetrated it's going to be tried, I think, hopefully very soon. Um, but, you know, t- what came out of his senseless murder has been a, a lot of different things. But one of the silver linings has been his parents' unbelievable. Um, and I can't even describe their – they've been obviously just, you know, cut to the bone by this. And so is the whole family but and friends. But they've come out as, like, champions of kindness – and they uh, formed the Blaze It Forward Foundation and Movement. And if you haven't joined it, you can check it out online at Blaze It Forward. And also, if you look at Facebook, it's very active on Facebook at Blaze It Forward. Um, and their whole platform here is just spreading kindness. Blaze It Forward for someone else. It's like the pay it forward movement. Uh, it doesn't have to be buying Starbucks for the person in back of you in line, but that's an example. But it's just like, how can we practice random acts or not so random acts of kindness and be kinder to each other? And I think that they are onto something. And to me, kindness doesn't have to be this big gesture, right? I don't have to be in line at Starbucks in the drive-thru and buy, you know, Starbucks for the five people behind me. Um, I don't have to donate to charity, although I, I do want to and do it. Uh, it doesn't have to be about money. It can be about anything. And it's the smallest gesture. And again, and I'll have to post on my Instagram and Facebook this journal I'm doing that Jeannie found for her and I to do together. Um, every day on there, one of the daily meditations um, or practices is, you know, what did you do for someone for someone else? What act of kindness? Um, and I'm like, that's a beautiful thing. 
And so I think if all of us could think about what one random act of kindness can you do every day? And let's just start like being kind all day, right? And I'm not saying we're always in a great mood. And am I always nice to the person on the other end of the line of customer service? I mean, I'm kind of famous in my family for being a hell of a bitch when it comes to like a customer service issue. And I'm really working on it because like it's not their fault. I mean, you know, so, but I'm terrible. So that's, again, I'm adding myself for something I'm not good at. That's one of them is customer service agents need to be treated with kindness. I'm working on it. That's my pledge. And I've been better lately because it is not their fault. And accidents happen, right? You know, something doesn't get to you when it's supposed to in the mail, whatever. But what I found myself trying to do is just be kinder on the daily. And I think Jeannie and I went to Whole Foods Market. um, And the one by us happens to be in a busy shopping center. And you have to cross the street. And it's a little bit like the old game of Frogger for those of us that grew up with that video game. Um, it's like you might die on the way to Whole Foods, but like if you make it, you're going to be eating a lot healthier. So you're wanting to make the effort. You know, you're going to be spending too much money on it, but you're going to feel so great about all your purchases. So we kind of, you know, forward that stream across that um, crosswalk there, which is like a mess at the shopping center. And I just said, you know what, Jeannie, like what if, and we always, when someone stops for us, we like almost do like a ticker tape parade for them. We like wave, like kind of like pageant style to them. We like blow a kiss. We like are like, thank you so much. We like mouth the words there in their car that can hear us. But we're like almost bowing to them for stopping for us. And I'm like, I appreciate that, right? They're busy. They have places to go. They're probably late to come get a kid from T-ball. Um, you know, their mom might be at the hospital. I don't know what they're going through, but they've stopped for us to let us across the street. And that sounds super basic, but a lot of the time people don't stop for us and they like practically run us over or they just are not, um, I don't know, like they're just not courteous and they just go when they shouldn't. And so I have made an effort to always stop for people. Even if I'm like letting too many people through and the car behind me is beeping, I'll stay there and let a couple more people through. Um, And I feel like if everyone treated each other with these small gestures, whether it's taking your shopping cart back, uh, whether it's, and, and that's kindness one, for the people that are parking there that won't ding their car. Two, for the person, the poor person that has to corral all the shopping carts. You may say that's their job, but they have other parts of their job. And why not make their job a little lighter that day? So it's like, that's an example. I think going on social media and not just trolling, but actually if someone's hurting or someone posts something positive or whatever, why not say a nice thing? Like, you look gorgeous in that picture. Like, take a second. I mean, a lot of times, like, that sounds really weird. And my kids think I'm so bizarre. They're like, you comment on everyone's stuff. But, you know, I think that feels good. So why can't you just do that for somebody? Um, why can't you let someone cross the street? Um, you know, the other day I'm on a walk with, I think it might have been with Sarah Tobin, who asked me this question about kindness. Um, we're walking on Balboa and some a darling group of older gals were, you know, I could tell renting a house and having some kind of cocktail party. And they were, had their hands full and couldn't open the gate. We stopped our walk to open the gate. It's not a big deal. It made me feel good. We had a little funny interaction with the gals and got to know them for a hot second. That felt great. You know, open the door for somebody. You see someone struggling with a package, help them with that. Um, You know, reaching out to someone that you haven't talked to in a while. Um, Even if you don't have a reason, you're just thinking about them. Tell them you're thinking about them. So these little acts of kindness, I think, would do so much if we all practice them to erode this culture of like disconnection, distrust. You're a Republican. You're a Democrat. I mean, I don't give a shit. Like, I don't care what political party you are. Just be kind. I respect your views. You do your thing. And I think we're missing a lot of this kindness in our society. And again, it sounds so stupid. Like, do I think people letting other people cross the street and giving someone a wave will 
stop school shootings? Maybe I do, actually. Maybe I do. I think in the big picture, if we're all practicing it like on a big level. So I feel like let's do more of that. Can't we just be kind? And if you disagree with someone on Facebook, you don't have to blast them. You know what I mean? Um, I'd rather you spend your time on Facebook and Instagram and stuff if you're going to do that. Instead of trolling and talking shit about people, like why don't you just write a nice comment? Um, It doesn't have to be, you know, anything long. Just like, thanks for sharing this. This is a beautiful message. I mean, it's not that hard. So can we all just get along, please? Um, Let's see what else. Oh, Jim Malardi is like amazing. I don't know if you guys follow Jim. And this is going to be my last thing because I have to go at some point. Um, Jim Alardi is like this amazing artist. He started out, he um, ran with his partner in Laguna back for those of us that were down here in the day around my age, let's say, um, locals only in Laguna, which if you ever shopped it, you know what I'm talking about. Amazing sense of style. He also calls himself the modern beachcomber. He beachcombs all the beaches. He, when he travels, he beachcombs other beaches, but he does a lot of like Corona del Mar, Laguna beaches, and finds like amazing stuff on the beaches, whether it's fishing weights, pieces of fiberglass that washed up, sea glass, whatever. Um, He basically cleans our beaches to a certain extent and finds these treasures and then makes art with them. He's done huge installations, like the Tommy Bahama flagship in New York has a huge installation of his where he's got his like kind of a macrame, which he's famous for big installations of macrame and kind of bringing that back with like uh, fishing rope, I mean, and jute and all sorts of amazing materials. Um, But he's done like installations with shells tied to it, stones tied to it. And he's so a lover of nature and the earth that he just leaves the smallest footprint. Like everything he does is found objects. Um, He will not drill a a hole into anything that was ever living, including a shell. I mean, he treads lightly, but creates big impact with his artwork. And just with his style, he's like incredible. So it's Jim Malarty. It's O-L-A-R-T-E. He has many other accolades besides the ones I can mention now because my podcast does have to have an endpoint at some point. Um, so follow him. Modern beachcomber, amazing artist. And now he's working with like interior designers like Riley Clausen, who is putting his like big macrame, juicy macrame into her spaces. And it's like beyond the beyond. Um, he asked, talk about the importance of reading books versus TV, Netflix, Amazon, old reruns. Okay, Jim, I am a book reader, always will be. I have a book problem, I would say, because I don't, I have like a whole shelf of books I haven't read. Um, I collect books. I love books. My, um, I literally have like a Jenga looking side table um, by my bed, my nightstand with like, I'm reading three books at a time. There are four others on deck. Um I can't, there can't be enough books. So I am so down with this. Um, And however you all read books, whether, I mean, go to the library. I'm like, I forget that the library is there. Why is that? Like, I don't even have to buy all these books, but I like owning them. Library is a great resource though. Buy books from your local bookstore. I mean, if you have to go Amazon because you can't find it somewhere else, fine. But Lido Books, Laguna Beach Books, let's, you know, give them some love. Um, I have to confess, Jim, that I honestly... um, Stayed up two nights in a row this week, which is another reason why I'm not practicing self-care and need to get back on the wagon. Watching Unbelievable on Netflix, which was amazing, I'm going to say, but I don't have to stay up till 2 a.m. two nights. You know what I mean? That's dumb. So I should have been just, you know, I, sleep hygiene and me are not friends. I'm learning about it, but I just, fuck, it was such a good, such a good show. But um, so Unbelievable on Netflix If you have to watch Netflix, um, which you probably do because it's addictive. But as Jim said, like, think about reading a book. Like, and honestly, I don't feel like there's any substitute for like 
a book in the hand, like a hard, doesn't be hardcover, but like a real tangible book. There's something about it. And if you haven't done it in a while, try it. And just, it doesn't have to be like some erudite, like tome. Like you don't have to read like Ulysses, you know, or the Odyssey or, you know, even Catcher in the Rye. I mean, I hated that book. I don't know why people love it, but that's another topic. Just like pick up any book, even if you feel like it's trash fiction or whatever, who cares? It's a fun memoir. Chelsea Handler's new book. I mean, just kind of read for the experience and for the checking out and take it outside. Um, I am so down with this message and I'm glad that Jim brought it up. And if anyone ever wants book recommendations, I'm a a voracious reader. Message me. I'll have tons of recommendations for you. Um, And I was walking with a dear friend this week, um, Chris, and um, she is just an amazing, you know, PR communications genius um, and just like a super cool person that's like super well informed and so great to talk to. And she had been talking about um, one of my new clients is Davio's restaurant um, by the airport uh, in Irvine. And it's like this great white tablecloth steakhouse, Italian, um, North Italian cuisine, delicious food, the most amazing service. And I, I'm picky, as you could tell, because customer service issues. Um and we just got them on board as a client. I had never heard of them. Come to find out they're like huge in Boston, big on the East Coast, in Atlanta. Like they're like kind of the stuff of like myth and legend in Boston, right? And this is the restaurateur, by the way, Steve DeFilippo, who um, took on American Express. I don't know if you all remember that. It was like back in the early 90s, I think, by saying like, hey, American Express, you're you're killing the restaurant business. I think it was during a recession at the beginning of the 90s um, by charging 4%. And um, and I like American Express, by the way, card member since 91, love the benefits. But um, he made a good point. Restaurants were already suffering and American Express was gouging them. And so he was able to rework the relationship, like single-handedly got a lot of other chefs, famous chefs on board with American Express so that now restaurants and American Express have this great symbiotic relationship where there's cross-promotion and all sorts of membership reward stuff. So Steve DeFilippo, I think is how I pronounce it. Forgive me, Steve. Um a genius in many other ways, including on how um, the guest experience, which applies to any business, is your client experience. So I just had read his book. Um, it's all about the guest. And um, I was talking to Chris about it on our walk around Balboa, another walk. So I did do some self-care this week. Um, and she had mentioned Dan- Danny Meyer's book from Union Square, um, the, the his group. I think it's Gramercy Tavern. I think his group is the Union Square group. But I could be wrong. And Danny Meyer doesn't listen yet, but if he, when he starts, hi, Danny. So Chris is a huge fan, had said, you know, Danny Meyer wrote a book on this exact topic. It's like all about the guest and that experience and how to apply it to business. And it's not just about hospitality. So it was such a great thing. Chris, we walked, we talked about it. She sent me a book, his book, Danny Meyer's book that she's just been talking about. It made my day and my week because I'm like, wow, like, how thoughtful. That's a great friendship. And Perlana in my conversation last week talking about what friendships look like. I'm not saying it to give me presents all the time, but what a thoughtful gesture. Great walk, great conversation. Says it's her favorite book of all time. Sends me a copy. Uh, and now I have this great gift of hers I'm going to pass along. So beautiful week. That was a great highlight. Um, Jim Malardi, you are onto something. I'm going to read Danny Meyer's book. I'll let you guys know how it is. Thank you, Chris, for that. Um, and I think I've answered everybody who was on here. So I am so thankful for you all. I cannot even tell you. I was so happy to come today. I almost didn't because I'm like, I'm so tired, you know, but I'm like, you know what? I mean, even if I didn't put it on air, 
I'm just going to come talk and see what happens. And of course, as always, it's been better for me than for you. And that's not my goal. But, you know, like I said, I did start this podcast because it felt like a great gift to give myself. And I hope that you all are getting some gifts from it as well. Have a wonderful week, my friends and my loves, and I will talk to you soon.